Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Last week we talked about the importance of unity in our series. Um, we're entitling Peace on Earth. And we talked about what unity looked like. And I ended up by talking about some evidences or fruit of unity that we should see not only in our own lives, but in the life of our church. And I just want to run through them really quickly again to kind of set up where we're going to go today. Uh, the first evidence or fruit of unity is a, a harmony of shared lives with people regularly meeting together, eating together, praying together, worshiping together. There, there should be this harmony of a shared life. Second, there should, uh, there's no worldly discrimination based on race, gender, age, economic status, a commitment to genuine understanding and agreement rather than an imposed uniformity. Uh, people feel the freedom to respectfully disagree with one another, work productively toward common kingdom goals, and invest our spiritual and material resources far more effectively. We should see durable relationships. Um, and ultimately, unity enhances our witness for Christ in the world. So this week, as we continue through our series uh, called Peace on... <clears throat> again, we're calling Peace on Earth. I want to talk a little bit about conflict and how God uses conflict in our lives. And throughout this series at various points, it is my hope that you will be pushed and stretched and challenged in some areas that you maybe aren't comfortable with. And when that happens, when we come to a place of, of conflict and we're, we, we have to make some kind of decision, we, we have to decide, how are we going to respond? Just like in this series, when you're pushed to a place and you're like, wait a minute, that, that's, that's not what I normally do. What Dale's saying, what the Bible's saying, doesn't line up with what I'm doing. Conflict. Now what are you going to do? At the beginning of the series, I talked about the fact that a lot of people, when it comes to conflict, run away from it. They avoid it. They try to ignore it, move on to something else, pretend like it's not there. But typically what happens is it builds up and it comes back around again. And this morning, we're going to look at a very short passage um, in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, or starting in verse 13. And we should have it up on the screen for you. In Luke 12, we read this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now let me set the scene here a little bit. you got Jesus. He's going along with his disciples, and he's teaching and this man runs up to him. And knowing that Jesus is a teacher, right, a, a rabbi, and he's, he's asking him to do what rabbis would often do, which is make a decision about a matter in, in their life, in their family, right? They, they want to hear what the man of God has to say about this issue. What does God's word have to say about this issue? Because there's this inheritance that's being left between him and his brother, and this is right before Jesus launches into a teaching on the parable of the rich fool, 
So that's important to know that these things are connected. Where he further goes into detail about why we need to avoid covetousness. covetousness. And this is the, the story where the man has these barns and, and he has so much stuff. And he thinks to himself, you know, you know what I should do? is because I have so much stuff, I should build some bigger barns. Then I can put even more stuff in there. And the Lord says, you fool, because this night your life is required of you. And all that stuff that you have won't be yours anymore. But before that, what, what prompts that discussion and parable is this little interaction that, that sparks the teaching that Jesus launches into. This short little interaction here. He says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So in my mind, I kind of have this picture, excuse me, of a guy running up. And you know, Jesus, will you please correct my brother? Right? That's what this guy wants. He doesn't want Jesus to say, well, your brother can have all of it. That's not why he's coming up and talking to Jesus, right? He wants Jesus, the man of God, the rabbi, to, to err on his side and, and come down and make a judgment for him. He doesn't seem to understand that he needs somebody to tell him how to do this. And, and he thinks to himself, Jesus, you're the man for the job. So could you do that? Because clearly... My brother's in the wrong, and I, and I just need somebody else to tell him that, and I want you to prove it. So we've got this person who's incredibly self-righteous, who thinks clearly that they deserved more than they're getting, right? Like, I'm owed more. They're not happy with the settlement and the way the inheritance is going, and some of you have been in this place. You've experienced this firsthand. You've watched families. I know I've watched it. Unfortunately, sometimes I've even had to be the arbitrator at times for families. In some cases where, where families like the patriarch or the matriarch passes away and this, this loving Christian family that goes to church, worships God, it just turns into something totally different when there's money on the table. Some of you are old enough to understand. Some of you have seen Maybe your parents go through this if you're not old enough to understand. Loving siblings, brothers, sisters. Well, we love each other. We, can't, uh, we just can't be around each other. And then, you know, mom died, and there's some property and some money worth about a half a million dollars. What are we going to do with it? And that's where the fighting starts. And that's where this guy is. He... He doesn't like the way the inheritance is being divided up. Maybe he's the younger brother. And being the older brother, typically in Jewish custom, the older brother took precedent. He got half of the entire estate, and the other siblings had to divvy up the remaining half amongst themselves. And so maybe that's the case here. Maybe he's a younger brother that just doesn't think it's fair the way it's happening. And he wants Jesus to correct his brother. This conflict has come into his life between him and his brother. And he wants Jesus to take a side 
And if he were honest, go against the brother, right? That, that's what he wants. When conflict enters our lives, we are typically respond in one of two ways. We either run and avoid it, and I've seen this happen a lot of times, especially in the instance I gave earlier of inheritances, where one kid just walks away and says, you know what, it's not worth the fight. I'm just walking away, not, not because they're trying to be honorable, but because they just don't want to fight. They just don't want to deal with the messiness and the, the conflict in the relationship. So they just throw their hands up and say, you know what? I don't need any of it. I'm going to walk away. You guys fight amongst yourselves. Again, not for honorable reasons, but because they just they want to avoid conflict. But the other thing that we can do, besides running and avoiding it, <clears throat> when we're faced with conflict, is we begin to judge others critically. We begin to point the finger away from ourselves and we have this sinful inclination to judge other people rather than to give them the benefit of the doubt. And this is a tendency that we see in the world really from the very beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when God talks to Adam. What does Adam say? It's my fault. I did it. No. He said it's not my fault. It's her fault. And not only is it her fault, but it's your fault because you gave her to me. <laughs> right? This has been happening from the beginning of time. It's Satan's fault when God asks Eve. It's not her fault. Our tendency is to blame others. You think about Joseph's brothers in Genesis chapter 37. They encourage that sibling jealousy until it become a, a murderous plot against their own brother. By focusing endlessly on the ways that the younger brother had offended them. That's how they got to the point of murder. They didn't start with, hey, let's murder our brother. They started by focusing on all these things that they felt were offenses against themselves. They rehearsed them. And that bitterness, that root of bitterness set in. And it led to utter rebellion, which was, in this case, a murderous plot. Dad loves him more. Dad gave him the fancy coat. He didn't give me one. He didn't do all that stuff for us. They focus on the other person rather than their own hearts and their own self. Or maybe Samuel chapter 18 shows how King Saul, he, he become obsessed with David's conduct and repeatedly blamed him for their estrangement. Right? It's David's fault. It's not my fault that we're, in strange, we're estranged right now. It's not my fault at all. It's all his fault. And this tendency to blame others is, is just so ingrained in us. It's not even something we have to teach our kids, is it? They, they just come out of the womb doing it. Some of the first things you hear kids say was, he took my toy, or she hit me first, or... He hit me first, right? Whenever there's a conflict, we're quick to blame others. And as we get older, though, we, unlike those two-year-olds, we get a little smoother at it, right? We, we've, we've had a lot of practice. We get better at it. We get a little bit more nuanced, if you will, because we don't want people to realize. We, 
We don't want it to be so obvious that we're blaming other people rather than looking at ourselves. But that natural tendency is still there. So you think about how deeply ingrained this idea of blaming others is in our culture. I see it when I think about all the lawyer commercials that fill the internet TV billboards, right? It's never your fault. It was the store owner's fault. They should have cleaned the place better. They shouldn't have designed the curb so that you would trip over it, right? It's not your fault. It's their fault. It was always the other driver's fault, even though you cut them off, right? And it's the lawyers who are getting rich off of this. This this sinful attitude that we have to blame others rather than taking responsibility or looking into our own heart. I want you to notice first what Jesus tells this man. In verse 15, he said to him, take care. Another way to say that is, Watch out. Watch out. There's something coming. That whenever we take the conflict and we focus on other people, we need to watch out because of the blame game. And that blame game is not going to get us anywhere. And Jesus knows that. It's never, the blame game has never gotten rid of a conflict in our lives. Every time that we come into conflict and we start blaming other people and looking down upon them and being frustrated with them and focusing on all their bad traits, we're moving farther and farther and farther away from ever being able to achieve peace. We blame others. We tend to then exaggerate people's faults and failures. And we completely overlook any good characteristics that they may have. Why? Because we need to justify our anger, right? We need evidence. We're becoming the lawyers. We're building a case. And worse than that, and Jesus knows that we need to watch out, we need to be careful, because when we focus on blaming the other person, rather than looking into our own heart, what happens? What inevitably happens? We tend to draw others into our conflict, right? Because if I'm the lawyer and I'm building the case, I need my expert testimony witnesses, right? To come alongside of me and say, you know what? This person is acting like this. And don't just take my word for it. Let me bring in witness number one and witness number two. And so you go out and start recruiting more people into your sin. And Jesus is saying to us, watch out. Be careful. This is not just a sin that is going to affect you. It's going to start there. But sin always seeks to express itself in the extreme. Don't ever forget that. And so it starts roping in more and more and more people. Because we want to have people on our side going, yeah, you're right. They're wrong. Right? Isn't that what this guy is trying to get Jesus to do? 
He wants Jesus to say, you're right. Your brother's wrong. That's not a good way to handle it. Guys, guys, this happens all the time in churches. Part of my counseling ministry is is to actually sit and counsel other pastors. And, And I sit with them and I listen to them tell me time and time again about these tiny little things. I mean, really, in the grand scale, they're tiny little things. But a a leader in a church makes some decision, whatever it may be, that somebody doesn't like. And rather than dealing with the conflict and going to the person, to the leader, to the pastor, and talking to them, they go around and start talking to other people. We're going to them because we don't really think that It's right. And we want other people to think the same thing. And then you start to remember, well, you know what? Three months ago, they did this other thing. And I didn't like that either. And six months ago, they did this other thing. And I I didn't like that either. You, You know what? I think this is a pattern. I think there's a real problem here. Maybe this guy shouldn't be our pastor anymore. Maybe maybe we should just start looking for another church. Or maybe we should start looking for another pastor for our church. And we'll stop giving to the general fund and direct all of our money to the building fund until there's not enough money to pay a salary. That's a true counseling case in Lake City. All the people got mad about a decision They stopped giving their money to the general fund, gave it all to the building fund, and starved out the pastor. Because they didn't want to fire him, because then they'd be the bad people, right? But they got everybody on their side, and they found a different way to handle the conflict. It's no wonder Jesus says, watch out. Be careful. Because when you're focusing on the other brother, you're heading down a dangerous path. It's one that leads to a critical spirit. And inevitably, it aggravates resentments and a judgmental attitude and anger. Maybe you've met some of those people. Maybe you've been to church with some of those people. And guys, I've seen this so many times that People have just become engulfed in bitterness. They're just, they're just the most bitter people you've ever met in your life. And oh, the damage that does to the testimony of Jesus Christ for them to then say, I'm a believer. When they are just eat up with bitterness. It's no wonder Jesus says, Watch out. Especially when you think about verses like Psalm 73, 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. You ever had that experience? With somebody who's just so embittered that that, that they're just like, 
They're like a beast going on a rampage. And they don't care who they hurt. I want my way. No matter what. No matter who gets hurt. I want what I want when I want it. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you've worked in customer service. I think everybody should have to work in customer service. I think you would much, you'd be a lot nicer to people in customer service if you were required to work in customer service, especially customer service during a holiday season. I, I told the women's conference this. It, it saddens me to go and talk to my waitresses at Sunny's and to hear them tell me how they dread being scheduled on Sundays because church people are the worst. They are the absolute, they, they tip the least, they complain the most, and they just treat the servers like dirt. Christians, people claiming to love Jesus Christ, and they don't, they don't even want to come up. If they can get out of Sundays, they get out of Sundays. And this is what happens when, when we've allowed these, these little things to fester and, 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 and embitter us and never deal with anything. And then what do they do? They, they just they come in and expect everything to be their way because they are right because they have convinced themselves that they know everything and, and that's where it leads this is why we have to watch out we have to take care jesus warns us so if we want the the peace on earth that jesus brings we we will want to resolve conflict so we don't end up there then obviously, focusing on the other person, I hope you understand now, will never get you where you want to be. It's never going to bring about the peace and reconciliation that you're desiring, that you should be desiring as a follower of the Prince of Peace. So how do we do it then? Well, thankfully, Jesus doesn't end by just saying, watch out, <laughs> be careful. Now he goes on in the passage and he says, be on guard against all kinds of covetousness or greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see what Jesus did right there? This is, man, you should study the way Jesus answers people's questions. Because he is a master at this. He turns the conversation in a totally different direction. Jesus is teaching us that we can change the course of a conflict if we turn our attention away from others and back onto our own hearts. Jesus doesn't correct the brother. Jesus doesn't tell the brother to change the way he's doing the inheritance. Jesus instead says to this man who comes up to him, look into your own heart. What 
lives there. What sin is growing there? That's where you have to start. He's essentially saying, stop blaming other people about the conflict. First, turn around and look at the way that you have contributed to the problem. What's going on in your heart that's leading you to want me to change the inheritance, to to want me to intercede on your behalf? What's happening in your heart that's desiring that? What's what's festering in you? What's growing, growing in you? Is it covetousness? Is it greed? Is that really the source of the conflict? Jesus gives a similar exhortation in Matthew 7, 3 through 5 that some of you may be familiar with. Even if you don't attend church regularly, this is something that's often quoted in the world. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus has great love for us, and he's showing us that and and teaching us that there There's a different way to turn conflicts around. And it's not by blaming the other person. Instead of indulging our habit of putting the emphasis on others, Jesus is teaching us that the shortest route to peace and reconciliation is to take a careful look in the mirror. That's the fastest way to get to peace and reconciliation. Not looking at the other person, but looking at yourself. So that we can identify and confess the planks in our own eyes. The problem is no different today than it was in Jesus' times. The problem is we're a room full of people with planks in our eyes. And because you think you don't have any planks in your eyes, you think that qualifies you to sit in judgment upon others. When in reality... You can't see clearly to begin with. Because your eye, your eyes are full of planks. And Jesus is teaching, you know, we need, we need to watch out. We need to, we need to turn it. We need to look at what's going on in our own hearts. Then and only then will we be in a position to graciously and effectively help others to see how they have contributed to a conflict. And then we'll be able to help them resolve it. Guys, I want you to think about the fact that, think about this, every time you sin, that's conflict. Every time you sin, we create conflict. And those of us who are teachers and who are encouraging and trying to help others, we need to first look into ourselves. Where is the plank in our own eye? I saw it just this week, but I've seen it so many times where sitting with with two people and we're talking and one person begins to confess their sin. And rather than jumping on them and telling them, I told you so, 
Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to change. Here's what you need to do for me. The, the, per, the other person started to say, man, I, you know what? That shows up in my life like this. I, I struggle with that same way like this. And ultimately, I realized that my struggle that I'm struggling with is that my hope really isn't in Jesus. That this was a, a married couple, and, and the, the hope was in the spouse. They, they were putting so much hope in, my spouse will make me happy, my spouse will take care of me, my spouse will do all these things. Not bad things, but God things. Things only God can do. And they were putting such a weight on the other that they couldn't bear it because they were never designed to bear it. And it was only when they both could see how they were both doing it that things began to change. The other person said, my, my hope is in other things too. It's in money. It's in the world. For some of you, your hope may be in Politics. But what Jesus was convicting them was the, the underlying thing was that both of them weren't placing their hope ultimately in him. They were placing it in all these other things. And that was creating conflict in their marriage. And guys, it, it was amazing because the other person that was struggling heard it <laughs> now if that same scenario would have went down and they would have confessed their sin and and what the person um would have said was you know what your problem is your hope isn't in jesus we would have gotten nowhere but because they were able to admit you know my hope's not always in jesus either the other party felt heard Because the person cared enough about their spouse to look into their own eye and find the log first. To find where they also struggled with that sin. Confessing it, confessing it to, the, to their spouse. And it opened up a way for a gracious correction to happen see that that's what jesus is calling us to and, and listen guys this is this is <laughs> this is where it gets hard and i know some of you might be going it's already hard now <laughs> but it's, it's going to get even harder when jesus says be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What he's talking about here with greed is, is a deep heart condition. It's not a surface level sin of, of dealing with some inheritance. That, that's not your real problem, Jesus is saying. You're up here, and I want you to go down here. And that's where it gets hard.
We've got to get down to the heart of the matter. We've got to get down to the, to the root, if you will, of the behavior. See, a lot of us, a lot of you guys, are, are really, you, you, you're getting pretty good at confessing behaviors. You, you, you're, you're getting good at being honest and saying, you know what, I struggle with this or I struggle with this. I, I know I shouldn't look at these things or do these things. And you're getting better at that. And that, that's great. But we're not always taking the next step of getting down to the heart level. And really confessing those deeper sins like greed and pride or idolatry. And this is where Jesus wants us to go. He, he doesn't want us to just stay on the surface. Talking about inheritances or our brothers and why things aren't working. No, he wants us to go deeper. He wants us to get to the place of our heart sins, to be able to confess those and share those with others. The reality is genuine reconciliation and lasting change requires a transformed heart. Genuine reconciliation and lasting change requires a transformed heart. Sadly, I think this is why so many people struggle with bitterness rather than genuine reconciliation and lasting changes because their heart was never transformed in the first place. And, and the last thing I want you to do is leave here this morning thinking that this is something you can practice apart from God. You, you, I can't do this. You can't do this. Because dying to your flesh is not something you can do in your own power. There are not enough verses you can memorize. There's not enough classes you can take to teach yourself the Bible. You can't do all these things to die to yourself without God's help. Without God's help, it is impossible. We need to be transformed by Him. When we get down to things like greed and idolatry and pride, these are deep-seated issues that we need God to help us with. In Matthew 15, 8, 18 through 19, Jesus is giving us some more examples of this. He says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, the truth is echoed and applied specifically to conflict in James 4.1. What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions through these passages god is teaching us that the key to experiencing genuine peace and reconciliation is to recognize confess and get rid of the sinful desires that are ruling our hearts but the reality is again we cannot do this on our own we need him no matter how much you hate pride 
No matter how much you hate self-righteousness, no matter how much you hate envy, jealousy, or unforgiveness, you can't just sweep those things under the rug yourself. You can't get those things out of your heart on your own. But the good news this morning, guys, God can. And not only can he, he wants to. Because he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty of our wicked heart condition. He, he came to die for the condition of our hearts. Because he knew that apart from him, there was no other way. And so God showing his love for us sent Jesus to come and die on that cross. And when we put our faith in him, he saves us and he redeems us. And then he begins a process of sanctification in our lives, transforming us and changing us and molding us into the image of his son. And listen, that doesn't mean that we all look identical. We, God created each one of us different. God loves diversity. But there is a uniformity when it comes to the way in which we behave and we behave like Jesus. And, and that process of sanctification is, is what God is, is working in and through us. You see, God, when he forgives us, he redeems us, he also gives us a new heart. We started this series in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And he does that by giving us a new heart. And we see that portrayed in a future perfect sense in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This, this transformation of our hearts is both an event and a process. At some point in the future, this event will be perfected. This process will be over. But today, it's still a process. Today, it's working through and it's dying to ourselves. It's, it's diving below the surface to find out what really lies within our hearts and uprooting that with God's help. And every time we come into conflict, we have an opportunity to put more of ourselves to death. If we confess our sin and we take it to God and ask him to change us. This is what sanctification and walking out the Christian faith looks like. When we find ourselves faced with conflict, and remember, conflict is any sin, right? Because if nothing else, you're in conflict with God when you sin. So even if no other human being is involved, it's just something you were thinking in your mind, you're still in conflict with God. 
So every time we come into conflict, we have a choice. Are we going to confess our sin and cling to the cross and ask him to save us? Or are we going to indulge the flesh and move farther away from him, farther away from our relationship with him? Every time we are in conflict, we have the opportunity to either identify with the worldly desires that have taken control of our hearts and turn our eyes away from God, or we can allow God to purify and liberate our hearts. We confess our sinful desires not only to God, but to one another, allowing that power of sin to be broken in our lives. As we meet together and we study together and we grow together, again, that should be the mark of unity in a body, shared lives. We can't just stay on the surface talking about our behaviors. We need to demonstrate the reality of God's transforming work in our hearts by admitting the desires that have been ruling our hearts, such as greed, control, envy, idolatry, selfishness. These kinds of humble and transparent confessions are far more likely to touch the heart of someone we've offended and to move them to forgive us. And also to take a deeper look at themselves. And maybe that'll be right then. Maybe that'll be next week. Maybe that'll be next month. But, it's, but if you're focused on our part of the equation, it really doesn't matter how they respond in the grand scheme of things, because you're at peace with them. You've done everything God has asked you to do. You've identified the sin that's causing you to be in conflict with them. You've confessed that to them, that, 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 they may, that may allow them to see why they're in conflict with you, or it may not. But either way, you are now living at peace with them, which is all you can do, ultimately. God is calling us to live in peace, not only with him, but with everyone around us. What's beautiful is when both sides in a conflict dig into their own hearts, confess, confess both the attitudes and the actions that have offended others. Guys, it, it, it's amazing to see the turnaround that happens when that happens. I've seen couples that absolutely hated each other become some of the sweetest, most loving couples you've ever seen in your life because they did the hard work of dealing what was deep in their heart and not just floating on the surface. This should mark our lives as Christians. That even when we disagree about things, we can still be unified together. We can still live at peace with one another. We can still love one another. I have a lot of friends that are pastors, and I'm at, I'm at peace with them, but man, I disagree with them on certain theological things. But it's okay because it doesn't affect the gospel. And because it's, it's not those close-handed doctrinal issues that we talked about last week, because doctrine is important, and I'm not dismissing it, it's important. But as long as we can agree on those close-handed issues, if his view on the way the world is going to end is slightly different than mine, I can still be his brother in Christ. 
I can still love him. And this should be the way that we live our lives with that kind of unity. This kind of confession, being willing to be open and honest about our sin, first and foremost with God, but also with each other. It shows, you might be going, but Dale, why do I have to confess my sin to other people? Because it shows us that that sin no longer has power over us. I was challenged with this one day when I was reading one of the Puritans, and I can't remember which one, it's probably John Owen, but don't quote me on that hard. Um, But he said that sin that cannot be confessed always has power over a person. Sin that cannot be confessed always has power over a person. And it's only when you confess that sin to others that you're demonstrating that the power has been broken by Christ. Why is that? Because you're no longer ashamed. If you're honest, that's the real reason why you don't want to confess your sins to other people, because you're ashamed. But shame implies that you have some part in that. And as long as you keep that going inside of you, it still has power over you. But when you get to that place that you confess that sin to God and God has forgiven you, there's no need for shame anymore. Because His work is perfect. My forgiveness, not always perfect. His forgiveness, always perfect. What He accomplished on the cross is complete. And my identity is within Him, not within me. It should not shock any of you that that you commit idolatry. It should not shock any of you that you want to have control in every situation. It, not, it shouldn't shock you that you are envious. That, that shouldn't be a surprise. But if your identity is in yourself and not in Christ, oh, we can't dare talk about those things. It's only when we confess sin that it breaks the power it has over us. Our identity should be within him, not within us. Again, our natural response to conflict is to either run away or to blame the other guys. This morning, I want you to see that Jesus has opened up a different and better path for peace and reconciliation. By his grace, we can humbly face up to the sinful desires in our hearts. We can confess the logs in our own eyes. And guys, this is a radically different approach to conflict than I'm sure most of you are used to. But this is the way we are called to live as Christians. Will you follow Christ when it comes to resolving conflict and take up your cross and die to yourself by focusing on your heart and the sins that are controlling your heart and how you contribute to the conflict and confess that first. First. Why am I emphasizing the first? Because Christ went first. Will you go first to others 
Don't leave here this morning going, well, if they come to me, I'll do it. Will you go? You had your trial run last week at Thanksgiving. Christmas is coming. Will you go first? Let's pray. Father, thank you for going first, for sending your son to a world full of people that hate you, that desire everything but you. And yet you went first. And Jesus went first to the cross. Talk about a radical way to deal with conflict. The Savior of the world nailed to a cross, dying for his enemies. God, your ways are not our ways. And if we're honest this morning, the same is true for how we deal with conflict. Your ways are above our ways. Father, this morning I pray that you would lead us into a time of confession, that your Holy Spirit would show us those areas in our lives where we have been blaming others before looking at ourselves. And Father, maybe we need to have a conversation after the service, make a phone call after the service, go and visit somebody this afternoon and confess our own heart desires, God, that have contributed to the conflict, that have continued to stoke the fires of the conflict and keep it burning far longer than it should have ever burned in the first place. Father, we thank you for sending your son to make peace, to resolve the ultimate conflict we have of our sinful hearts so that we might have peace with you, God. Now let that peace through your Holy Spirit drive us to be agents of peace on earth. And Lord, by doing that, hard work of reconciliation. Father, maybe some of our family members will come to know you. Maybe some of our friends will come to know you when they see the radically different way in which you approach conflict. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.